Good morning. Good morning, everyone. Um, well, that's been rich, and God's speaking to us, and um, it's got more to say, actually. And uh, I'd like to pray um, before I kick off and uh, whilst the PowerPoint is being discovered. Uh, Lord, thank you that you're here with us. Thank you that the way in which Andy led us is already our experience this morning. Right at the start, as he said, as we offer ourselves to you, you come and you deal with our mind and our imagination and uh, you set us right. Thank you that you're doing that already. Thank you that you speak and it does us good and we pray for more. We pray that all that you want to say to us, whether it's lifting us up, helping us to see a bigger picture, getting hold of your life to be bold, Lord, speak more to us that we might miss out on anything that you wish to give us this morning. May our hearts be good soil for the seed that you're sowing in this place this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Great. Well, here we are. You are amazing. That's actually my main point this morning. So just letting you know, um, we are starting a new series, which ties in with one that we did last term. Our theme is Golden Threads. And last term, we went through the big story of the Bible from beginning to end, from Genesis to Revelation. And uh, what we're doing in this series is said, you know, there are some key things that come up again and again and again through that story, like golden threads in a tapestry. And what we're going to do over the next few weeks is follow some of those threads through the story. And uh, I get to start that this morning. And this title, You're Amazing, is all to do with who we are. What does it mean for us to be human, for us to be men and women. I don't know whether any of you have watched this TV show over the last this run to about eight series now. Who do you think you are? Popular BBC TV series in which they take a celebrity and then start working back through their family history and tell them things they didn't know about themselves. There was the one where Stephen Fry discovered he had Jewish roots, uh, the one where Jeremy Clarkson discovered that his, one of his ancestors invented kilner jars, and uh, the one where Patsy Kendit discovered that her stock that she came from were London gangsters. And it's proven to be really interesting and popular. I have to say, some of you know this because I've been nattering about it uh, the last couple of weeks, but I have got engaged in looking into my own family history in the, the last couple of weeks. It's prompted a little bit by a dream that Ruth Hetler had last September and some, a word from the Lord that came to look backwards, but also I just got a bit obsessed. <laughs> I, I understand it's something to do with being in my early 40s. There's something about, not the obsessive bit, I've had that all my life, the interest in, in family. And this is, my, this is me in the middle. That's me, I'm the red bit in the middle. I've discovered these are all of my... Parents, grandparents, great-grandparents, great-great-grandparents, and great-great... How many that is? That's, that's where I've come from. There's quite a lot of people there that all have to bear some responsibility for who I am. 
Uh, and there's me in the middle. I'm, I'm the biggest part of it there, the, whatever it is that I am. And it's been surprising to me. I've discovered that I'm a lot less Welsh than I thought I was. I'm a Jones. Um, I'm actually largely Gloucestershire farmhand. That's mostly what I am. Um, a bit more Scottish than I thought. What I've been surprised by is how disorientating it's been to discover more of my family and where I come from. Because this stuff of who we think we are is quite deep. There's one level, which is you know, the stuff we do. And then we talk about you know, what, how we live life and lifestyle. And there's something underneath this, who we are, that's about identity, that I, I knew that that was quite deep stuff. And even so, I've been disorientated, surprised, and changed just by this discovery of... The, this is the last couple of hundred years. Uh, but what we're looking at together is a bigger story that goes back not just a couple of hundred years, but to the very beginnings of what it is to be human. We made use last term of a book written by Vaughan Roberts, the rector at St. Ebbs. I've stuck some red lines on here just to simplify it. If you picked up his book, you'll recognize this diagram. If you don't, if you didn't, well, I'll just run through it quickly. This is a summary of the story of the whole of the Bible. How high up the line is, is really just how good things are. Things start good. God creates the world and all the wriggly things and all the growing things and the people and says it's good, but then Adam and Eve rebel against God and it goes right down. God begins to speak to Abraham and promise him a better future. And then through uh, the time of Moses and then into the time of Joshua and Judges and David, the people of God called Israel are built up. But the ongoing story of the Old Testament is that it doesn't thrive. They end up going into exile, it goes down, and then there's a long period in which things stay rubbish for the people of Israel. Then Jesus comes and introduces a whole new chapter to the story. Things pick up again, and the story of the Bible is they'll continue getting better as the kingdom of God grows until such time as Jesus comes back and it's all finished off, made perfect. The reason that that red line continues along the bottom is that whilst Jesus came and brought in the kingdom of God, this new era of wonderful, wonderful life, uh, he brought it into this world without taking over everything in one fell swoop because God wants to give as much time and space as possible for people to repent and come to a knowledge of him. He doesn't want anyone to perish. And so we live in this, this dual age. We're in the world, not of the world. We uh, are born naturally, and those who've found faith in Jesus are also born from above. We are natural people, and we are spiritual people, and we sometimes talk about the now and not yet of the kingdom, which means that this future kingdom is already with us, but it's not yet complete. So that's, that's a little reminder for you of the big story. 
Uh, why did we do that? It wasn't just an academic exercise. It wasn't just so that we know more stuff and be better informed. Um, I've got another picture here. They say a picture's worth a thousand words. And I wonder what story you see in this picture. It looks like a soldier coming out of the theater of war, carrying a wounded comrade. Um, the image on the screen isn't quite as orangey as it was when I first came across it. But it's actually, a, a, there's a sort of orange glow here that means it's either the beginning or the end of the day. And my point is that whatever's going on here, the story is massively affected by whether this is a sunset or a sunrise. If he's struggling out of the desert as night is falling, then there are all kinds of dangers that lie ahead and really uh, a, a diminished expectation of a good outcome as the desert night falls and temperatures plummet. If it's a sunrise, then they've got through the worst of it and there's more reason for hope. So our lives lived out as they are, the moments of our lives, it matters what we know about the bigger picture. If we think that we're living at a time of sunset, when actually the sun is rising, then we will have a wrong understanding of our lives. And that's why we've looked at the bigger story, because we have a place in this story. We're towards the right-hand end, the bit where it's got Pentecost there, we live at a particular point in the story, and that point in the story provides the framework for our lives. And if we don't know that framework, if we don't know where we sit in the story, we are likely to, to have a wrong understanding and a whole wrong set of feelings about the life that we live. That's why we've looked at it because it makes a difference for life. So the strand that we're going to be looking at today, the golden strand, golden thread that we're looking at, is this thing about who we are. And indeed, it does start with this, this major headline, you are amazing. The reason that I know that is partly because I've met some of you, uh, but also because of this thing. In Genesis chapter 1, right at the beginning, it says uh, who we are, who it is, that God has made us to be. Genesis 1, verse 26. God said, let us make man in our image, in our likeness. It's a key phrase. In our image, in our likeness. And let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the livestock, over all the earth, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female. He created them, and God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful, increase in number, fill the earth, subdue it, rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, and over every living creature that moves on the ground. And this phrase, image and likeness, defines who we are. We are made, you are made, in the image and likeness of God. What does that mean? Well, in the ancient world, the reason I've put a picture of a statue there, it's a statue of an Egyptian god in Lower Egypt, 
where this particular pharaoh had never gone. Why have I done that? Well, in the ancient world, they had idols that were formed in the shape of some god or other, and they believed about those idols that that thing, though it was made of stone or wood or silver, being shaped as it was, it had a connection with the god that it was made to look like. It didn't just look like that God, it was connected somehow. And that's why you'd put it in a temple, and that's why you'd go to the temple to look at the idol, because you had a sense that if I see that, then I'm getting closer to the God with whom it's actually connected. And not only that, but that idol in some way represented the power of that God in people's lives, in the world. That's what people understood an idol to be. The Old Testament speaks against that and says, well, it's it's nonsense, isn't it? And part of the reason that it's nonsense is because it works a different way. In the ancient world, they didn't just understand this was going on with idols. They also understood it was going on with kings. So kings would say of themselves, I am the image and likeness of the Almighty God. So, if you want his power at work in your life, you need to come to me. Because I, your king, your emperor, your pharaoh, I am connected to that divine power, and I rule this world on behalf of that divine power. It's called the divine right of kings. It's part of English history as well. So there were idols connected to gods and kings in the image and likeness of God. And let's read again in Genesis. It says here about all of us, every single one of us, that actually what it is to be human is we are made in the image and likeness of God. Do you get it? It means that who you are, just because you're human, is you are made to be connected to God. You're so like him that there's a connection between you and him. That's what we're made for. And that means we rule the world for him. Because we do indeed represent his power in the world. That's what it means to be made in the image of God. That's why it makes complete sense. Sometimes we read this, we're made in the image of God. Oh, and then there's this bit about ruling. Well, what's that about? Well, it's connected. It's because we're like him and because we're connected to him that of of course we rule in this world because that's what we're like. So the truth is, you are amazing. You are. I don't know... You see, some people may have woken up this morning thinking, yeah, it's true. (laughs) Yeah, I am amazing. And you know what? You're right. (laughs) Yes, you are. Others, I'm sure, did not wake up with that feeling this morning, did not wake up feeling amazing at all. And the next part of the story explains why that is. Because the next part of the story is Adam and Eve's disobedience. It's there in Genesis chapter
And through their disobedience, that image and likeness of God was in some way broken. They were immediately, I'm not clicking on, any, there we go. There we are. They were still amazing, created in the image of God, but through their sin, they were, they were broken. The first bit of brokenness that we read about, Genesis 3 and verse 7, is straight after they've disobeyed God, they're ashamed. And there's this fracture, it's like a fracture that comes inside who they are, that they're, they're, they're embarrassed of their own bodies. Whereas before they were at peace, they're now embarrassed that anyone could see who they physically are. There's a fracture that's come in, and they're broken. But though they're broken, the image of God is not entirely lost. It's not wiped away. We know that from Genesis chapter 9, where in speaking to Noah, God says, whoever sheds human blood, by humans shall their blood be shed. That's the point that is made. And then the reason is given, for in the image of God has God made humankind. So this is way after Adam and Eve's fall from grace. But still, it's true for all people that we're made in the image of God. So that's who we are. Amazing and broken. Amazing and broken. So some of you will have woken up this morning feeling the amazing bit more clearly. And you probably need to be more aware of your brokenness. And others woke up just sights filled with a knowledge of your brokenness. The truth for all of us is that we are amazing and broken. The story goes on. It doesn't just stop there. The story of the rest of the Old Testament is of God providing ways for his people to recover their real identity as royal and precious and close to him. The story is also that the nation of Israel kept on turning away, kept on doing just what Adam and Eve had once done, and kept on rejecting God. I want to read a longer chunk from one of the prophets to you to show how this comes up later in the story. It's in Ezekiel 16. It's entitled in the NIV translation, An Allegory of Unfaithful Jerusalem. I just want you to listen carefully here to the, the sense of the immense worth and preciousness of, of the person being described. I want you to listen to God's determination to restore her image, but also listen to her attitude. The word of the Lord came to me, son of man, confront Jerusalem with her detestable practices and say, this is what the sovereign Lord says to Jerusalem. Your ancestry and birth were in the land of the Canaanites. Your father was an Amorite and your mother a Hittite. Here, this is where it starts to really kick in. On the day you were born, your cord was not cut, nor were you washed with water to make you clean, nor were you rubbed with salt or wrapped in cloth. No one looked on you with pity or had compassion enough to do any of these things for you. Rather, you were thrown out into the open field 
For on the day you were born, you were despised. Then, ha, then, God says, I passed by. I passed by and I saw you kicking about in your blood. And as you lay there in your blood, I said to you, live. And I made you grow like a plant of the field. And you grew up and you developed and you became the most beautiful of jewels. Your breasts were formed, your hair grew, you who were naked and bare. Later, I passed by. And when I looked at you and saw that you were old enough for love, I spread the corner of my garment over you and I covered your nakedness and I gave you my solemn oath and I entered into a covenant with you declares the sovereign Lord and you became mine and I bathed you with water and I washed the blood from you and I put ointments on you and I clothed you with an embroidered dress and put leather sandals on you I dressed you in fine linen and covered you with costly garments I adorned you with jewelry I put bracelets on your arms and a necklace around your neck, and I put a ring on your nose and earrings on your ears, a beautiful crown on your head. And so you were adorned with gold and silver. Your clothes were made of fine linen and costly fabric and embroidered cloth, and your food was fine flour and honey and olive oil, and you became very beautiful, and you rose to be a queen. And your fame spread among the nations on account of your beauty because of the splendor I'd given you to make your beauty perfect, declares the sovereign Lord. But, but, you trusted in your beauty and in your fame to become a prostitute. You lavished your favors on anyone who passed by And your beauty became his. You took some of your garments to make gaudy high places where you carried on your prostitution. Such things shouldn't happen, nor should they ever occur. You also took the fine jewelry that I gave you, the jewelry made of gold and silver, and you made for yourself idols and engaged in prostitution with them. And you took your embroidered clothes to put on them. And you offered my oil and incense before them. Also the food that I'd provided for you, the fine flour and olive oil and honey I gave you to eat, you offered as fragrant incense before them. This is what happened, declares the sovereign Lord. And you took your sons and daughters whom you bore to me and you sacrificed them as food to the idols. This is why when we went through the uh, series that we did through the Old Testament, there wasn't a lot of um, volunteers for doing the bit about Israel and the prophets. (laughs) It's a sober time in the story of the Bible that speaks honest truths about us, what it is to be people, that not only are we amazing and broken, but we're also fickle. We are amazing and broken and fickle. And then Jesus comes. 
And the question is no longer so much, who are we, but who is he? And the truth about Jesus is that he is amazing. The scriptures come back to this truth about the image of God. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 4, says that Christ is the image of God. And then the reference I have up there, Hebrews 1, 3, says, the Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. He is exactly in the image and likeness of God. He represents him exactly. He is amazing. He was also broken. 1 Corinthians 11 says, The Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, took bread, and when he'd given thanks, he broke it. And then he said, This is me. This is my body. This is me. I, I am broken. Amazing? Like us. Well, ever more so. Broken, like us. But when he died on the cross, he said, it is finished, John 19, verse 30. And he, he'd been faithful to the end. Whereas we are amazing and broken and fickle, Jesus is amazing, broken, and faithful. Perfectly in the image of God. Exact representation of what God is like. And then the story continues. Jesus rose from the dead. He ascended into heaven. And we learn from that latter part of the Bible that he will come again. 1 Corinthians 15 says, Just as we have borne the image of the earthly man, so shall we bear the image of the heavenly man. It's saying that when Jesus comes back again, it will be a moment of change for us. It won't just be some cosmic event, but we too will be renewed and changed. We will all be changed in a flash, in a twinkling of an eye. And it's not just a random change like a makeover. We will be restored in the image and likeness of God. One John 3 verse 2 says, when Christ appears, we shall be like him. When Christ appears, we shall be like him. Uh, This is a restored photo. Restored, uh, uh, it's the original photo on the left. And we'll be restored. There's a technicolor version of you. That is to be found to be renewed. When Jesus comes again, we will get our divine mojo back. Which has been lost. And will be restored to us. What's our moment then? That's the story beginning to end about us and who we are. What's our moment in this story? Uh, Is it a sunrise time for us, or is it a sunset time for us? Well, the scripture tells us that, well, that rather depends. It rather depends on how we respond to this Jesus. For those who reject God, 
this age is a sunset time. A time of decay. Uh, An increasing spiral of brokenness. This is said ever so clearly in Romans chapter 1, reading from verse 28. Because they didn't think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, so God gave them over to a depraved mind, so that they do what ought not to be done. They've become filled with every kind of wickedness and evil, greed and depravity. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice, their gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. Speaking of what happens for those who turn away from God, there's a spiral downwards. God says, so you want to live apart from me? Okay. It's a sunset time. Time of increasing darkness. True fact. I mean, um, I don't often speak along these lines, but we do see this darkness in the society around us, don't we? There are aspects of the secular nature of the society around us, and it's not just the atheists. There are other elements in society too that mean that society is in some ways getting more and more depraved. I don't know about you, but I find it harder and harder to find something I want to watch on telly. And I am astonished at some of the things that are broadcast. I'm just astonished. I mean, sat last night, Bev and I, and looking, we're looking at, clicking through, going, don't want to watch that, don't want to watch that. Why on earth would anyone want to watch that? And yet people do. There is a depravity in the world. I mean, true fact. And for those who are giving themselves to it, this age is not an age of glory and positive transformation, but of increasing depravity, and that's something that the scriptures lead us to believe. But for those of us who have turned our faces to Jesus, there's a better truth, a better reality. Many of you will know this is really my favorite verse in the whole Bible. Um, 2 Corinthians 3, last verse, verse 18. We, with unveiled faces, as unveiled to God, as Graham rightly said, God takes away curtains. <laughs> he takes away veils that separate anything, actually, that separates us from him, he'll take away. So the, the veil that's gone is the one that was between us and the Lord. We, with unveiled faces, reflect the Lord's glory and are being transformed into his likeness with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. See, Jesus was broken, not as the result of him having done anything wrong, but he was broken so that our broken pieces would be put back together. There's a promise of transformation from glory to glory. I didn't actually read, when I read about the breaking bread thing, I didn't actually read the whole of uh, the verse. 
Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, took bread, and when he'd given thanks, he broke it, and he said, this is my body, this is me, this is me broken, but he said, this is my body, which is for you. He is broken so that we might be mended. We remember that when we break bread. Jesus told us, keep on doing this. Because every time you break the bread, you remember what I did for you. And as you take it and eat it, you accept. It's a statement of faith that accepts, I need that mending. I need your brokenness to be for me. So that the fractured nature of who I am can be put back together. And you know what? The fickleness can be changed for faithfulness too. Jesus was broken that we might be made whole. And he sends his Holy Spirit to mend our insides, to mend our relationships with other people, and to enable us to live with reality. We are not Humpty Dumpty. We're not. You know the nursery rhyme, Humpty Dumpty sat on a wall. Humpty Dumpty had a great fall. All the king's horses... I don't know why anyone thinks the horses are going to help. But anyway, all the king's horses and all the king's men couldn't put Humpty together again. And, you know, I think, actually, in that nursery rhyme is something of the word of the Lord for us this morning, um, strangely enough. Because what God really wants to speak to us this morning is those points at which we have said to ourselves, this brokenness is not for fixing. This brokenness is, is the way I am. You know, I get it from my grandparents, or it's been there since I was born. It's kind of this brokenness, this brokenness, this is who I am. But wherever it's come from, whether it's from the last generations or the last couple of hundred years, or whether that brokenness that's in you goes all the way back to the creation of humanity into Adam and Eve... However deep-seated it is, there is no brokenness that God cannot repair. There is nothing too difficult for him. God wants to speak this word of truth over us all this morning. He wants to speak truth over those things that we think cannot be fixed, those things that cannot change in us. I want to say this morning, if you are struggling with depression want you to know you are not broken beyond repair. If you're struggling with an addiction to pornography, I want you to know you are not broken beyond repair. If you're overcome with anxiety and fear, if you experience panic attacks, You need to know, you are not broken beyond repair. If you're consumed by ambition and pride, can't seem to see beyond yourself to the needs of others. You are not broken beyond repair. If you're overtaken by greed, or as people like to to call it nowadays, excessive consumption, (laughs) greed. 
you're not broken beyond repair. If you're experiencing an eating disorder, if you're experiencing confusion about your identity, maybe about your gender, if you're struggling with illness, if you're fighting cancer, you know, whatever it is that, that we might just go, well, you know, that's, that's kind of something that just is, isn't it? I mean, that happens, stuff happens, and stuff just happens, and we need to embrace and accept stuff as part of life. The word of God to us today, we sang it, actually, when we sang, death is defeated. And death is the worst of all enemies. If death is defeated, then all the rest is defeated too. There is nothing that God will not repair. Lord, maybe just get that. I actually want to, to pray against the works of the enemy at this point because there's a fight going on right now. There's a tussle. There are strongholds being rattled. And Lord, I pray they wouldn't just be rattled, they'd be pulled down. Pray you'd break in and break out. Break through, break whatever you want to break, Lord. And grant us an expectation of transformation. Because we're amazing. And you were broken for us. Thank you, Lord. I have one more thing to say. And this is getting practical. In the nursery rhyme, the horses were no good, but nor were the king's men. Not so in the church. There are lots of king's men and women in the church um, who are called pastors. I was introduced as the pastor of the church. There are many people who function with pastoral gifts in the body of Christ. And the point of pastoral ministry is precisely fixing one another. That's what happens. The brokenness in us gets addressed, it gets fixed, and we move on restored in significant ways. Um, So I want to finish by saying everyone needs a pastor. The problem is sometimes we don't believe it. We don't think we need one. Remember, when I first started working for OCC, one of my first tasks was I sat down with Steve Thomas, who was then leading this church, and we sat down with a young man who had seduced... He just seduced the third woman in the church that we knew about. So we sat down with him to seek to bring some discipline and... um, I'm glad I wasn't him that day. Um, and I was given the task of walking with him through a period of discipline, and, which he embraced, which, which was good. And as time went by, and I got to the substance of what was going on with him, what became clear was that when he'd become a Christian, he was a drunkard and a womanizer. And when he became a Christian, his alcoholism and actually his smoking uh, both evaporated overnight. The desire for them just went. And uh, some years later, 
he was just waiting for God to do the same thing with his womanizing. Just thought, well, God's been gracious to me and changed some things in my life. You know, one day he'll come along and he'll do the same with the things that remain to be done. That's why I'm talking about pastoral ministry this morning. Because my biggest fear this morning is that people who have, that if you've got hold of the truth of who you are, got hold of the truth that there's a better future for you, believing that change can happen, but with all of that in place, still walk out with the determination to passively wait for God to somehow do it one day, then you've, you've missed something really important. Because God gives us one another. God gives us one another. There are king's women, often are women, and men, who can help fix us and put us back together. Everyone needs a pastor. Every pastor needs a pastor as well. This is not about some kind of hierarchy. We all need the benefit of this blessing. And um, I'm going to hand back to Andy who will just help us to land that practically so that this morning leads to real change. Hopefully it's been a moment of inspiration, but what matters is real change.